Nearly a decade ago, I found myself filling the hours by listening to podcasts while my husband, Brooks, was training with the U.S. Army. Walking the streets of our Army post, I dreamt of creating something for women that bridged that gap between sermon audio and small talk. It was on the floor of my tiny closet on post that that very dream, the Dream for the Journey Women podcast, came to fruition in June of 2017. And today, by God's grace, Journey Women is now a not-for-profit ministry with the aim of moving women to know and love God more. Our monthly and one-time givers help make our mission possible. If you'd like to support the work that we do, you can make a tax-deductible donation by visiting journeywomen.org forward slash give. Thank you for investing in the work of Journey Women. Welcome to the Journey Women Podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Beeless. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women Podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. Today, we get to hear from John T. Rhodes, who lives all the way across the pond in the UK, where he serves as the minister of Christ Church Central Leeds. John T. has spent the last 10 years planting churches in England, and he's the author of Covenants Made Simple and Man of Sorrows, his brand new book with Crossway. Today, we're talking about Christ as prophet, priest, and king. I know you're going to walk away from this conversation with a better understanding of what Christ did for us and what he's doing for us even now. John T. Rhodes, welcome to the Journey Women podcast. Thank you. Good to be with you. It's very good to be with you. What time is it where you're at? Because we're in totally different places in the world right now. We are. Yeah. So I'm in the, in the north of England in Yorkshire, which is the, the biggest county in England. And it is, well, it's just gone two o'clock in the afternoon. Nice. So we're 8 a.m. here. And I just really appreciate you taking time out of your very busy day slash very busy life. You're getting ready to welcome your fifth baby. And we were trying to squish this interview into a time period before your wife goes into labor. So thank you, Mrs. Rhodes, for everything. (laughs) Yeah, she's a far godlier disciple than I am. But yeah, she's doing well, thanks. And any day now, hopefully, we'll, we'll have number five arriving. Aw, well, congratulations. And on a personal note, I first became familiar with your work reading Covenants Made Simple, which I benefited from so much. It's on the topic of the covenants, but you have a brand new book called Man of Sorrows published by Crossway. And in Man of Sorrows, you really unpack the offices of Christ, which is something that we're going to talk about today. It's something that I've really wanted to sit down and study for a long time. So how did you first become interested in studying and considering Christ as prophet, priest, and king? Very Practically, actually, the, the first idea came full enough out of a just a very offhand conversation with an American pastor friend. He was over in England and we, we were wandering through North Leeds, heading to the pub. And we were actually talking about preaching. Uh, and we were speaking about how, particularly when you're preaching Old Testament and often Old Testament stories, you kind of know you somehow this is about Jesus. You know, we, we, we know all scripture points to Jesus. But very often, sermons can kind of end up being whatever, you know, 30 minutes in the Old Testament. And then you kind of feel you need to say something about Jesus. And so we, we we talk for five minutes at the end about how he died on the cross to pay for our sins. And there we go. And and kind of everybody knows it's coming and it all they all end up sounding the same. So if you're doing 20 weeks in Judges, it, it feels like the last 20 minutes of every sermon end up 
more or less the same. Um, this guy, Brian Salter, he's, he's down at Lookout Mountain. He wondered if um, part of the problem was we didn't have a, 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 almost a broad enough view of Jesus as prophet, priest and king. So mm. we, we zoom into his priestly work and then we, we take that priestly work and zoom into the cross. And particularly in my world, we're, we're very keen to defend a, a view of the atonement, the cross that, that is all about Jesus bearing God's righteous wrath at our sins. So we zoom in from the cross to, to penal substitution, as it's called. And all those things are true and rich and glorious and central, actually. But they're not the whole canvas. <laughs> I think in the book, I use the illustration of the painting, the Hayway, that my, my children um, had to study at, at home school. And, you know, there's this beautiful wagon in the middle of it in this, this lovely Su- Suffolk countryside uh, in the south of England. Um, and it's called the Hayway. And that, that wagon with the horse, that's the centre. But, but part of its beauty is seen by seeing that it's the centre of a broader canvas. You know, the, the, the cows in the background, the river, the little you know, English 18th century cottage or, or whatever it is. And so j- just off that, that conversation with Brian, actually, it made me think about my own ministry and think, well, actually, am I presenting Jesus in all his richness, in all the richness that he comes to us in scripture? I went back and we, we did a Sunday school series at church, an adult Sunday school series, looking at these, this threefold office of Christ and the two states. And that's really what gave birth eventually to, to Man of Sorrows, King of Glory. You know, you mentioned the threefold office um, and then the two states. And that's something that's a theme that just runs through your book. So could you just kind of expound upon those ideas a little bit more? Well, if we start with the, the office, a threefold office, or sometimes people talk about three offices. But I think in some ways, the most helpful way to think about it is Jesus has one office. Ultimately, he's the, the mediator. You know, as Paul says in Timothy, he's the, uh, the one mediator between man and God, uh, the man Christ Jesus, uh, or he's the Messiah. But if you look at the word Messiah, which is quite a helpful way into the topic, really, your listeners will know perhaps that Messiah is the Hebrew word that is, equates to Christ um, in, the, in the New Testament Greek. And they both mean anointed one. And so when you think, well, why is Jesus called Christ or Messiah? You see that actually he's picking up a, a whole a whole swathes of the Old Testament. And when you look to the Old Testament and say, well, who, who, are, the, who are the anointed ones in the Old Testament? You see that predominantly it is three categories of people, three offices, if you like, the prophets, mm-hmm. the priests and the kings. And we've got a little bit less information on the prophets than the priests and the kings. But even there are a couple of examples. Um, but very clearly with the kings and the priests, their ministry, if you like, almost begins when they're anointed with oil um, as a symbol that these are going to be you know, God's representatives called to their particular role. Um, and so when Jesus comes on the scene and he's Jesus Christ, most Christians know it's not just his surname, um, but we're even just in his name, we're being given this huge clue that he's going to come as a king, as a priest and as a prophet. And so really everything he does comes out of that, that identity, those roles. I mean, again, we, we can talk about this more if you'd like, but in some ways you can look at aspects of his life and see that one of the roles comes to the, you know, the fore more obviously. So I suppose an easy example would be the Sermon on the Mount where Clearly, he's a great prophet revealing you know, God's word to us or calming the storm. He's a king who's able to conquer nature. But actually, and this is where I think it's helpful to talk about the, the threefold office. You know, his one office is Messiah and it, it works out in three ways. Actually, all the time, Jesus is prophet, priest and king at the same time. There are almost three, three ways of looking at the one person of Jesus. Sometimes the, the stories in the Gospels are the clearest way into that. Uh, so if you think of him healing the demon-possessed uh, man in, I think, all three of the, the synoptic Gospels. 
you know, what's he doing there? Well, what you could say, well, he's being a king because he's conquering the demons and driving them out, and that'd be right. But also, demons made you unclean. They're described as unclean spirits. So by driving out the demons, he's doing a priestly function. He's cleansing this man, making him clean and able to come to, to worship the Lord his God again. So you could say, well, he's being a king and a priest. And then you say, well, how, how does he do it? And he does it by commanding the demons, go, you know, be clean. So he's doing it by by speaking, which is a prophetic function. So just take that one miracle. You actually see Jesus as prophet, priest and king all at the same time. I think you can track that all the way through his ministry, right, right up to the cross, uh, which is you know, obviously the climax of Christ's work, but where he's still functioning, not just as priest, but as prophet and king as well. Yeah. And not only just in the life and ministry of Jesus, but we see it throughout the whole text. And that is what just makes my brain explode as I'm trying to consider things through this lens. So could you just kind of, I know this is a huge question, but could you just whet people's appetites for how we see themes and concepts of prophet, priest, and king throughout this storyline of scripture, as we know all of scripture points to the life and work of Christ, like you talked about? I suppose, as I've already alluded to, that the most obvious place to look is the the formal offices of prophet, priest, and king in the Old Testament. So David is the anointed king. Obviously, from his line, ultimately, Jesus descends. That The priests, right back in the book of Leviticus, I think it's Leviticus 9 or 10, I can't quite remember, um, for the first time, Aaron is anointed to lead God's people in worship. You can go right back to creation, right back to Adam, and see that Adam himself uh, was a prophet, a priest, and a king. Now, that's no surprise because Jesus is the last Adam, or the second Adam. So it's not surprising that they map onto each other. But if you look even in the Garden of Eden, so even before anything's gone wrong, no sin, no fall, what, what do we see? Well, I think pretty obviously, Adam's a king. You know, he's told to rule over the world, to subdue it. You know, they're kingly, kingly functions. A prophet? Well, again, you need to look a little bit more carefully, but... Um, the really significant thing there, I think, is that the commands that God gives, particularly to or not to take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they're given to Adam before Eve, as she's later named, Isha, as she is at the time, before she's created. How is Eve to know that she's not to take the fruit? She doesn't hear that from God directly, as Adam did. She's to hear that from Adam. So Adam is revealing God's will, or is meant to reveal God's will um, to Eve. And of course, we know from Paul that Adam and Eve are a picture of Christ and the church. Eve sort of symbolizes the, the bride of God, the, the church. So right there in the garden, you've got a picture of the church receiving God's word from a from a prophet. So Adam's a prophet. And then finally, what about priest? Well, again. You know, the explicit language isn't there. You know, God doesn't say, Adam, you are a prophet, a priest and a king. But I mean, that's OK, because in Genesis three, we don't read words like sin or fall or iniquity. But we know that's what's being described. Mm. And in the way that Eden is described, it's described just like the, the, the tabernacle and the temple will later be. So there's all sorts of fascinating little details like, um, we know, the entrance to the garden is on the, the east side. That's where the, the cherubim guards later. And when the tabernacle is set up, the entrance is always on the east side. Uh, the tabernacle curtain has a cherubim sewn into it, just like a cherubim guard in the garden. The temple and tabernacle are full of garden imagery, pomegranate trees and the like. And um, the candlestick in the temple is, is shaped like a tree. And, and in fact, that even the commands given to, to Adam to guard and keep, those words are only paired again uh, when God gives commands to the Levites um, to guard and keep the tabernacle. 
I mean, you know, there's lots more we could say, but but Adam's role and his setting are a kind of priestly temple setting as well. And I think there he, you know, the, the, the primary thing is that he's meant to to guard God's holy place. God walks in the garden, as we know, just again, same word, he walks in the tabernacle. So Adam was meant to crush Satan when Satan crept in. Well, obviously he didn't. And also he's to lead the, the worship, the, the praise. Even, even though there's no sin to atone for yet, we're still meant to be offering a sacrifice of praise. So right from the beginning, prophet, priest and king are, are intrinsic to Adam's calling. Wow. Well, what's exciting is that this is happening throughout all of the Old Testament. And so I think a lot of times we're coming to our Bible reading, especially if we're doing like a reading plan or something like I'm doing right now. And we're thinking, okay, here we go. We're going, we're going to dive into, you know, whatever chapter it is that seems quite daunting in the Old Testament. But I get really excited thinking about um, looking for some of these themes in the Old Testament, but then I'm also really daunted by it <laughs> because it's a challenging task. So what is it that you found that's just helped kind of aid your understanding and, and your ability to be able to look for some of these themes as you read? That's a great question. I mean, in many ways, it's um, I think it's, it's helpful to think of Bible reading as, a, as an art as much as a skill. So there's lots of books you can read about there the tools to help you understand the Bible, spot the repeated word in a pattern or, or in a passage rather, or whatever it may be. But actually, it's, I think it's just familiarity, isn't it? The more you read, um, because scripture is infinitely deep, it's the word of an infinite God. So you go back and read things that you've read five times before. And this time, oh, wow. I, I was really helped actually by someone saying, you've got to remember that when, you know, when the, the Bible was first written, both Old and New Testaments, most people didn't have a, you know, shelves of books whether theological books or Harry Potter or you know whatever it is you're reading, so they would know <laughs> one book really well. And you know, you study Shakespeare at school, and, and you know your English teacher goes on about how the brilliance of Shakespeare picking up a, an allusion here that it comes back later in the play or whatever. And the guy just said, "Look, you know, God is an infinitely better author than Shakespeare." Um, so just open your eyes a little bit. You know, the, the, there is so much going on, and I think the symbolism in particular when you, when you start reading. What did I come across? Oh, just the other. I mean, this is a tiny example. Just the other day, um, I suddenly stumbled across the fact that the only person I think in the Old Testament who ever can calm evil spirits, conquer evil spirits, is David. You know, with his harp when he soothed Saul, and you know, who is the only person in the New Testament who can ever conquer evil? So it was Jesus, the Son of David. And it's, it's it's a tiny little link, but it's just part of the richness coming out. So I think just don't. I think I'd say to people, don't worry about trying to find everything every time. You just read and read and read. It's a real book and more and more comes. I love that. One of the things that you said about the cross as we're moving kind of towards just zooming in on the life of Christ is that the cross is Christ's pulpit and throne as well as altar. I would love for you to expound on that a little bit more. I suspect for for many of your listeners, certainly for for me uh, over here in England, we are rightly um, keen to keep the cross central. Uh, we know we're meant to be cross-centered people. You know, Paul says, I preach Christ crucified. And, you know, you don't have to look very far outside, I was going to say outside the church, but even sadly inside the, the church, to see people wanting to attack um, the cross and, and particularly the idea that Christ bore our sins or bore God's wrath at our sins. And so my temptation is almost exclusively to end up talking about that aspect of the cross. And there, I suppose, particularly we're thinking about his sacrificial death, which is priestly kind of terminology that is central don't get me wrong that is i think that is absolutely the heart of the gospel you lose that you you lose everything so you know essentially christ's death you know the cross is is an altar 
Um, he offers himself for our sins. Um, he is the, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, um, just as the, the, you know, the lambs in the Old Testament were sacrificed for sin. So I, I don't want anything I say to take away from that, that being absolutely central. But I think we can also say that the, that the cross is doing more than just that. And it's really an outworking of the idea that Jesus is always prophet, priest and king. You know, what else do we learn when we look at the cross? Well, we see the, the cross is, is the place where, as Jesus says constantly in, in John's gospel, that he's lifted up. It's on the cross, if you like, that he, he is, his glory is seen. And it's at the cross that he conquers. I mean, that's what kings do in the Old Testament, isn't it? They conquer and defend their people. Well, who is Christ conquering at the cross? There's probably a couple of things we could say, but to take a, a really important example, he's conquering Satan. In fact, we were looking at this at, on Sunday at, at my own church. Paul can say in Colossians that it was at the cross that, that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities. And he means there, I think, not so much earthly kings and, and governors and emperors as the rules and authorities being that the spiritual forces of evil against us. And it's at the cross, Paul says, that, that, that God in Christ triumphed over them, humiliated them, put them to shame. And when he explains how, well, it's because the, the written record, our debt, is ripped up at the cross, cancelled. So as Christ pays our debt, bears the wrath of God on our sin, he is simultaneously taking away the devil's weapon against us. You know, the devil loves to accuse and say, you know, not you, not you, not after what you've done. You know, God would never have you. You could never be forgiven. But actually, I look to the cross and I see that Satan has had all his weapons torn from his hands because that guilt, which is true, I am guilty, but it's been paid for, ripped up. Hmm. So in that sense, that the throne is the place of Christ. Sorry, the cross is, is the throne, the place of him conquering and being uh, shown to be the supreme king. Or, or finally, his prophetic work, the cross, rather. I think the illustration I used in the book is, is, is his pul pulpit. It's where he preached to us most clearly uh, of the love of God. You know, where, if you want to see the love of God, where do you look? Well, the cross. But you also see the holiness of God at the cross or the justice of God. And I think it's prophetic, too, in showing us how God works. Uh, such an important theme in the early chapters of, of 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about the, the seeming foolishness of the cross, um, the weakness of the cross. And at the same time, the cross was the place where the power of God and the wisdom of God was displayed. So to earthly lies, it looks foolish, but actually it's the power of God for salvation. And, and Paul takes that and, and applies it, doesn't he, to the church. You know, the church looks weak and foolish, um, but don't, don't look with human eyes. If you want to know where God's at work, it is in the weak, the foolish, the shameful things in the eyes of the world. And so the, the cross is telling us something huge about how God works, as well as his, his nature, his love, his justice, and so on. So really, they're all just different ways of saying the cross has so much to say to us, not at all to undermine people's substitution, but just to add to it and show it off in even more glory. Mm. One of the things that you talk about in your book is the two states. And I think I cut you off earlier and we didn't get to talk about that, but I feel like you were describing it so well and would love for you to expound upon these two states, Christ's humiliation and exaltation. I think I often think about Christ's humiliation, but man, I found some of the things that you shared so helpful just in thinking about even Christ coming down to earth and taking on human flesh and seeing that as something that's like an addition as opposed to a subtraction. I'm not really sure if I'm wording that correctly, but yeah. I think you know what I'm referencing. Mm. So could you expound upon those two states and just kind of help us get a better understanding of um, the way in which he was uh, living those out during his earthly ministry? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots going on there. Um, so I suppose by way of introduction, the, the two states, 
this is this is not language that I've come up with at all. This is language that the church has used for hundreds of years, really. The two states are, are as you say, Christ's humiliation and his exaltation. And his humi- humiliation really describes, oh, I think I put in the book, from womb to tomb. So you know, everything from him coming down, the Son of God coming down, taking on flesh, becoming man, his life of suffering, his life of keeping the law for us, everything that happened, I mean, essentially the Gospels is, is a simple way to put it, right up to his his trial, his crucifixion, and then ending in his burial. So it would be, I suppose it would be summarised by uh, a passage like Philippians 2 that speaks about you know, Christ, although he's in very nature God, didn't mm-hmm. consider equality to be grasped, but made himself nothing, humbled himself, took the form of a servant. So it's that kind of, that journey downwards, we might say, to, to use picture language. But of course, his, his ministry and his life don't end in the grave. So we move from his humiliation to his state of exaltation and glory, if you like. When he raised up in the resurrection, uh, he ascends to heaven. He sits down, sometimes called the session, the sitting down at the right hand of the Father. And ultimately his return in, in glory at the end of the age. The two states are the kind of consecutive time periods divided by the burial and the resurrection, I suppose. I suspect most of us are better at thinking of Christ in his humiliation than his exaltation. Again, we want to be cross-centred, and, and that's quite right. But the Bible is, talks about more than just the cross. And so, I, again, I think just reflecting on my own weaknesses in my own spiritual life and also in min- my own ministry, I suspect I am better, and I'm sure lots of people in, in the congregations I've served are better, at speaking about what has Jesus done for you? He's mm-hmm. died for me. I can give a good answer to that. But if you change the question, say, what is Jesus doing for you? Mm-hmm. We just dry up a little bit quicker, I, I think. But actually, the Bible's full of, of riches on what he's doing now as prophet, priest and king. So as priest, he no longer needs to atone for our sin. That is finished. That's that's the, the work of his humiliation. He's paid for our sin. But he still intercedes for us. He prays for us. All these blessings he, he won in his earthly life and death, he now pours upon us. Uh, as king, he rules over us and defends us. Think about his words, you know, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. It's really easy to sort of fall into the trap of thinking, well, Jesus did the dying for sins and now it's our job to to build the church for him. Now he's gone off stage and is sitting up in heaven. But actually, you know, it's he who continues to build through us. And we can do the same with prophet. You know, it's tempting to think, well, he inspired the Bible to be written and now he that's it. But um you know, actually, we, we want to keep Jesus active. It is he who is speaking to us through the scriptures. It's not that he wrote a book for us and then left it down here on earth for us and then again has disappeared. No, it is he who is actively speaking to us through the, the reading of God's word and indeed the preaching of God's word when it's faithfully done. So I think thinking about the, the exaltation of Christ, the ongoing work of Christ, helps us to, I think a bit like this, keep Jesus active <laughs> on the scene. It's him who's always at work in us, through us, to us. It's him who leads us in worship Sunday by Sunday. You know, he's not retired off scene until the second coming. Yeah, I totally relate to you saying that, you know, you focus more on the humiliation versus the exaltation. And I'm really excited because we're going to get to expound upon some of the things that we just don't think about a lot in Christ's ministry. Later on in this series, we're going to talk about the resurrection and the ascension, which is something that I really, like you mentioned, I am I tend to be so cross-focused that a lot of times I will forget about those things. And in fact, don't know as much as I'd like to about yeah. both of those events. In that vein, you know, when we're looking at the offices of Christ, which one is one that we might be likely to miss or to overlook as we're reading through the text? 
That's such an interesting question, Hunter, because I think it it so depends on you as a person and actually very often on, on your church or your church tradition. So, you know, a classic way of looking at it would be to say that the, the churches that have headed in a more liberal direction sort of tend to try and keep Christ the prophet, telling them what to do, you know, be kind, love your neighbour, but push aside Christ the priest. You know, they don't want to talk about atoning sacrifices and sin needing being paid for. A sort of slightly you know, more liberal traditions tend to, I think, to avoid the, the priestly work of Christ. J.C. Ryle, who's a great bishop over here in England in, in the 19th century, he said, Satan cares nothing for Christ the prophet and Christ the king, as long as you can keep you away from Christ the priest. Hmm. I think that's probably a little bit of preacher's exaggeration, but it is the case, isn't it? If, we, if we're not coming to Christ as our sacrificial lamb, mm-hmm. then you know Christ is just a teacher and just a, a, a king to be obeyed. In that sense, you know, I, I want to say the, the priestly office. But as soon as I say that, there's sort of other, you know, little voices in my ears are going straight away and saying, well, but they all they all do blend into each other. So there probably are some traditions where we're good at thinking about Christ eternal sacrifice and so we talk about grace and, and mercy all the time and never talk about um, the need to submit to him, for example, as king or the fact that he's conquering the world, so the, the, the importance of mission. So I think it, it will depend. Some tend towards he's just our teacher. Some probably tend towards the, the kingly aspect. So let's redeem the world. Let's redeem our city. Let's you know transform the neighbourhood. And it's all about Christ conquering. We'll go on prayer walks or whatever it might be. And the, you know, the, the priestly work disappears. So I think it's hard to say that we all do one thing. Part, I think part of the beauty of, of thinking in these categories of prophet, priest and king is it, it stops us getting too imbalanced. Life is crazy sometimes, and finding time to sit down and read the Bible can be difficult. That is why I love Dwell. When I can't find time to read the Bible, I can listen to it. The voices reading the Bible are soothing. They're not your normal narrators. Plus, you can choose calming background music and adjust the pace of the narrator's voice to get things just right. Dwell's newest release is called Dwell Daily, a fresh, thoughtfully crafted devotional that immerses you in the Word, allowing you to pray it, meditate on it, and so much more. If you're looking to deepen your engagement with the Bible this year, Dwell Daily is worth checking out. I cannot recommend Dwell enough to help you orient your mind to the life-giving Word of God throughout your day. Go to dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen to receive your 25% discount today. Again, that's dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen for your 25% discount to subscribe and spend time in God's Word. Could we go back to what I was talking about in the humiliation piece? Because I feel like I could have been potentially confusing there and would love for you to just explain to me even a little bit better. I think thinking about humiliation in the context of Jesus's life is super helpful. I just found it so profound thinking about him taking on flesh as an yeah. addition and not subtraction. No, I think I think that's exactly right. So, of course, we you know, we're Christians. We believe that, that Jesus is the son of God and therefore he's existed eternally you know, as the son of God, you know, no beginning, no end, exists outside time and space. He is, you know, he has the one nature of God um, shared with father and, and, and spirit. So Jesus has not eternally been a, a man. Okay. If we, if we were having this conversation on 3000 years ago, we would not be able to speak about the son of God having a human nature, you know, Jesus, the man, because, you know, we're still a thousand BC. So from our perspective at a point in time, you know, 
the year dot as it were zero um, or one ad i can never remember how they do dating but you know the son of god he he remains an expression from an early from the early church is that remaining what he was he became what he was not um, remaining what he was he became what he was not so so jesus the son of god he he remains everything he is he doesn't give up any of his his powers or his attributes as we sometimes think so that's in, in your quote there that it's an addition not a subtraction you know we mustn't think that again to use human language coming down to earth jesus mm-hmm. in any way stopped being all-powerful or all-knowing or you know omnipresent you know, he's he's still everywhere but at the same time for the first time in human history he adds to himself he, he becomes something he was not which is a human being you know he takes himself a real human body a real human mind a real human soul and spirit. Everything it means to be human is true of Jesus, apart, of course, from from sin. So from then onwards, you know, from the moment that the Son of God becomes incarnate in Mary's womb, we can speak of Jesus as one person. He's still the the one person, the Son of God. There aren't two Jesuses, a human and a, a divine Jesus. He's one person. But now in two natures, everything that's true of God is true of Jesus. But now everything that's true of man is true of Jesus too. And that is, you know, when you start thinking about it, it's mind blowing. Um, so if you ask the question, let's say you're a, sh- a shepherd arriving at the manger, you know, Christmas scene, mm-hmm. and you were to ask a shepherd, where is this? Where is the son of God? If he was a particularly theologically sharp shepherd, <laughs> he, he should be giving you two answers. He should be able to point at the manger and say, there he is. Okay, and that is true. There he is in the manger. But at the same time, He's also filling the universe and beyond the universe and omnipresent and all the other things that are true of God. Hmm. So again, not two Jesuses, but you know the, the language the church has, has has tended to use is to say that take the take the where is Jesus question. He's present in the manger according to his human nature, and he's present everywhere according to his divine nature. But the two things are both true of the one person. Hence, that it's an addition. A human nature is to put it crudely, added to the the Son of God. How does thinking in these categories help us to just uh, get a broader view of who Christ is and what he has done for us? And how has like this study uh, just, I guess, just enhanced your own understanding of Jesus Christ and stirred your affection for him? Hmm. I mean, to speak personally, what it's, done for me is 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 maybe see just in a little bit (laughs) a little bit more clarity all the different ways i need to rely on jesus yeah you know i i think i I was converted as a a teenager sometime not sure exactly when you know in a kind of camp setting summer camp setting very clear he's the sacrifice for my sin Hmm. And I, of course, like all Christians, I waver and wonder and doubt and struggle, all the rest of it. But that, that's just been clear in my mind, at least, all the time. So you, I suppose you could say he's, he's my priest, at least my priest as a sacrifice. Hmm. But I think what thinking about these sort of things has helped me. So, you know, I, I get up this morning and, and, and read my Bible. And rather than thinking about that as this is me coming to a book to learn about you, Jesus. Actually, you know, this is me needing you jesus to speak to me you know you as prophet i need you now i i can't work things out from the bible with my you know clever human brain and my theology degree and my stack of theology books as if bible reading was a task about me climbing up to reach you 
you know, bottom up. No, no, rather, I need to rely on you to open my eyes to see things. You know, I need you to be active. So I think it's really helped me to, to see Jesus active in, you know, in all these ways. I'm just taking one, this prophet one. You know, speak to me now, Lord Jesus. Mm. I found the gospels come to life, actually. Say, so, you know, the blind men on the road outside Jericho, um, have mercy on me, son of David. And then Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? We want to see. Like, yeah, that, that's what I need, Lord. I need you to help me see. Mm. <laughs> it's not that you just died for me and now I can do the kind of learning all about you thing on my own with a bit of help from the Spirit or something. No, you need to teach me. Or, or King, Lord Jesus, I can't, I just can't resist Satan. I can't beat the sin that remains in my heart. I, I just I just can't do it. I think maybe when I was younger, you're just a bit more triumphalistic, aren't you? A bit more <laughs> self-confident or a bit more self-reliant. And, you know, you get a bit older and, and like, yes. I can't do it. Um so I need you as king, conquer the sin in my heart, conquer Satan and protect me from him. You know, kings rule over and they defend, they conquer. I, I just need you to do it, help me. So, I, yeah, I just think that the need for Jesus, but also beautifully the ways the scripture shows me Jesus doing all those things and that they are prayers that he loves to answer. Hmm. I really relate to what you said. I was just at a gathering of women that I've known for over a decade and the question came up, how are you different than you were 10 years ago? And my answer was, you know, I just don't think I'm as awesome as I once was. <laughs> like yeah. I just, I just feel less awesome. <laughs> <as> I, <laughs> yeah. I feel less impressive uh, than ever before in my life. So I really relate to that. And even as you were talking about Christ's work in his exaltation, just thinking about Christ praying for me and interceding yeah. on my behalf, that's become something that has been a real encouragement to me as a mother when I'm struggling mm -hmm. and wanting to give way to frustration and anger and to take that out on my children, just to remember Christ is praying for me in this moment. And I can just take heart in knowing that even when I don't have words to pray for myself, <laughs> yes. Christ is praying for me. So yeah. this is really exciting to me. I've talked on the podcast before, but we talked about the New Testament and I talked about how I really struggle um, when I'm reading the New Testament, just to relate to the ministry of Jesus. And I think that's really sad. And I felt really bad about it. <laughs> I still feel bad about it. Uh, I find just so much solidarity reading Paul's words and the epistles and things like that. But I'm really excited just to sit down with my journal and even just to to just try and look for these themes in the stories in the Gospels to write down maybe, oh, how am I seeing Jesus function in the role of prophet, priest, and king here yeah. in this particular story? So that sounds like a really helpful exercise that I'm excited to try and take on as we're getting off this call. What other resources would you recommend for people who really just want to try and get a better understanding of the offices of Christ or even his two states, humiliation mm -hmm. and exaltation? Obviously your book. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. let me recommend that one first, Jaunty. It's so rich and it's so good. I told you before we started our conversation that I read through I read through every book before having a guest on the show, and I was just drinking from a fire hose with my cheeks puffed out to here, but I'm excited to take a much slower read through the book because it's very rich, and I'm not saying that in the sense that it's hard to understand. As you can hear, I took a lot of things away from that fire hydrant drinking, <laughs> but I think it's one of those books that I'll want to read and reread and that I'll see as a resource in my theological library, just like Covenants Made Simple. So thank you so much for penning it. I know that probably took you literally years. Sure. Well, thank you. That's very kind to start with. Thank you. I'm glad it's been 
bit of help. It's funny you write things, they disappear into the ether. So it's yeah, it's also encouragement to hear from, from brands mm-hmm. and sisters elsewhere, especially across the world, across the oceans. Um I, I think that it if this is all really new to you, you know, maybe to a listener and they're thinking, just what what you know, what on earth is this English guy on about? Then a really short way into it is just just go online and look up the Heidelberg Catechism, mm-hmm. which is was, you know, a summary of um written four hundred years ago. And I mean, just Google Heidelberg Catechism, Prophet, Priest, mm-hmm. and King, and eat just in a couple of short paragraphs, they just explain what it means that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And it's really short, but really pastoral. And so that is almost like there's almost like a pair of glasses through which you can then <laughs> go deeper into okay. the topic. Um, you could do the same with the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Again, just put it in Google, even if these things mean nothing to you, um, and you'll get some really short questions and answers that you could read in four minutes max. Mm-hmm. And the references, right? I think they include the references exactly. after that you could look up if you wanted to use as a springboard. Exactly. And they, these things were written to help just everyday Christians understand the Bible. You know, they're not theology mm-hmm. quizzes or, you know, tests or something. So they, 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 yeah, I found them really useful. We use them at church a lot. In terms of resources, I, I, I think a brilliant way into thinking about the person of Christ. So, you know, all the stuff we were talking about, about, you know, one person, but two natures, and how can he be all knowing, but a human, all this sort of thing that, I mean, the, you referenced Wellam's book, which is a, a much more scholarly thing than I could ever write. Um, but at a really simple level, Mark Jones has written um, a really short book um, with um, Christian Focus Press called A Pocket Guide to Jesus Christ. Hmm. I mean, it is a tiny thing. It would fit in your pocket. It's probably 90 pages. But he is a brilliant thinker. He's a pastor. He's a really clear communicator. And that's what I've used loads to help people just get a really short, succinct understanding of the, the person of Jesus. He touches on the offices as well. It's short and I just think I think brilliantly done. After that, let me just mention one a bit left field, but I, I think it's such a beautiful, helpful book. And it's an old one. So as a Puritan, okay, which always rings alarm bells, doesn't it? We think they're going to be terrifying. But a Puritan <laughs> called Thomas Goodwin. He wrote a book called a heart, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners. Oh, wonderful. Um, we, I mean, it's actually got a title that's about 10 minutes long originally, but it's, it's usually <laughs> published like that now. Um, and it, it's all, a, so he begins by saying, you know, so many of us f- think that if I could just have been in Israel, I might have dared approach Jesus. You know, he seems gentle and humble and approachable and kind, but now he's in heaven, he seems distant and, you know, far away and maybe more cold hearted mm. now. And, and and the whole point of the Goodwin's book is to say, no, you know, Christ is even more gracious and glorious and humble and now than he even than he was on earth, at least according to his human nature. And it's just such a wonderfully pastoral book. And it's a great way into some older writers. It's not a really difficult read. It's not, you know, it, it is written 400 years ago, but the language is, you know, especially in a modern edition is, is great. Um, I, I guess many of your listeners might have read um which Auckland is it's Dane Auckland isn't it gentle yes. and lowly yes and he he picks up lots from Goodwin in there but he has a lot of the quotes I think he, from he that does book. yeah yeah but it's a beautiful that Thomas Goodwin book is a beautiful example of kind of meditating on on Christ's work and his exaltation what's he doing now in his prayers for us and his love mm-hmm. for us his care for us so there you go there's a there's a, a sort of a classic from the archives as it were as well 
I love it. Um, you and I were chatting before we got on and you asked me, you said this is probably uh, just a breakdown uh, where we're coming from like UK kind of vernacular into like US vernacular, which I'm not really sure that Simple Joys is actually like broadly understood by <laughs> the, the population of people here in the States. But I always ask, what are your three simple joys? And you asked, what is a simple joy? And I have to tell you that Getting on Amazon after we talk and purchasing the last two resources that you recommended, that's going to be one of my simple joys because reading just spiritual helps like that, that is just a true, like the essence of a simple joy for me, Jaunty, where I just get to just learn from the saints of old and from wiser saints like yourself. That's one of my simple joys, but I would love to hear from you. What are three of your simple joys when it comes to knowing and loving God more? Sure. It's a great question. I think I now understand, even from, <laughs> even from this side of the Atlantic. Um, I, one, of the, you know, one of the best pieces of adv- advice uh, that's made really helped me in my spiritual life, I stumbled across on Twitter about two years ago, of all places. You know, Twitter's oh, wow. usually a... That's redemptive. Exactly, exactly. It's usually a complete cesspit, isn't it? But um, I can't even remember who it was. I think it was some US professor. Don't know the guy at all. But he, he tweeted something like... Something like Whatever else you're doing in your devotions, whatever else you're doing, just make sure each day you you, you get to the Gospels and meet Jesus in the Gospels. Mm. I mean, it ties into what we've been talking about, actually. And I just found that so helpful, maybe because mm. I'm I'm sort of theologically minded. I like reading books and I resonate with what you say about Pauline epistles. And then we, you know, we work out the structure of the epistle and all this sort of stuff and big words and the rest of it. You know, so I I try um, to, to get into just just a short instant Jesus mm. meeting someone I, I, I now love the particularly Matthew Mark Luke because I understand them a bit better I think um but it's these little instants that used you know, used to be Sunday school stories to me you know right. meeting the blind man or the yes healing the beggar whatever it might be you know the, the, the man with the withered hand and I suddenly actually Lord Jesus I need you to heal my withered heart mm. and, and hearing you, you know the, the man say you know, I'm you know if you're willing and Jesus said I am willing you know be clean and just hearing those sort of things each day, I think, is huge. So I tend to do that in a psalm, making sure that happens each day, just because of the you know the richness of the psalms as as well. Um, yeah, that the, really encourages me. I feel like this is a point in my in my life, John T. Thank you because it's been culminating, as the listeners have heard. But that really, really encourages me. I'm like walking away from this so excited to do the same because what you described about the Sunday school stories, I think that's exactly, that puts a nail on the head of why it's been challenging for me to relate. So I'm just, I'm, I am, it's a great Journey Women episode when I'm excited to go read my Bible afterward. This is, this is tops for me. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're just always learning, aren't we? That I think, and actually that's, that's the other thing I'd say. I, one thing, I, I mean, I've, I've done this more intermittently, but I, I want to do it more. It's getting into reading letters from the past. So I've got next to me here, just just next to the laptop, I've got the letters of John Newton. Hmm. And just just seeing the way that someone like Newton or Rutherford, some of these great saints from the past, ministered to people by writing. Hmm. And they, you know, they're pastoring people in, in letters. And you just realise you're not alone. You realise the problems you have are not unique. I think particularly hmm. as a pastor at times, you can think, well, I'm not meant to have problems, really. <laughs> and then you realise that we all do. and. Mm-hmm. And just the wise advice you get from these guys who mm. knew Christ, knew the Bible, knew grace. Mm-hmm. So I, I have found that a real, real help as well. 
Uh, I mean, That's after that, it's the number one influence in my life by miles is my wife. Talking to my wife keeps oh. me sane and believing, and she speaks truth to me and reminds me of things that are true when I'm wobbling all over the place. So um, I can't really share her, but uh, <laughs> she's definitely... Maybe once the baby is here and well and and we're, you know, two years out, maybe we can get her on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, she'll maybe totally we kill can... me now, but yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's a lot wiser than I am. Uh, well, this leads into the next question really well, and it may be her, it may be someone else. You can take the question whatever way uh, you want. But, you know, the Journey Women podcast was really born out of having had a host of mentors in my own life. And hmm. John T, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but... We were in the military and we, in the last decade, have moved, uh, I think, seven times in the last 10 years. And so I began to interface with women who didn't have the blessing of having older, wiser mentors in their life and just thought, man, I would love to share the gift of what God's given me. And so many of the early episodes are friends and mentors that are from my day-to-day life. And so a question that I ask every guest who comes on the show, because I recognize and just realize that I can sit down and talk to Jaunty Rhodes, who's had a profound impact on my understanding of the covenants and now on the offices of Christ. But as much of a help as that is to me, the woman who's sitting next to me in the pew on Sunday mornings and the way that she loves her children and all of those things that mm. has uh, an infinitely greater impact on my yeah. day-to-day life. So I would love to hear from you who it is that's had the greatest impact on the way that you know and love God more. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, I couldn't agree more with your, yeah, with your words. It is, it is, it is the saints of God around us that are far more significant than you know, the Tim Kellers and John Pipers of this world. Um, mm-hmm. Great as those those men are. Mm-hmm. I mean, no doubt my wife, just, I mean, just no doubt whatsoever. Um, I've spoken to that already. Um, I, I, I actually, I, so I would somewhat echo your feeling about there are times when you don't have that many mentors. So I, mm. I find it hard to think of, a, of one person who's been a, a mentor. I had a great first pastor when I was a, a trainee minister, the senior minister of the church in just small churches maybe 150 people a guy called mark pickles who's a, an anglican minister actually would be probably the most significant influence on on me in general and just just more recently I've, um just someone who's he's preaching and teaching i found tremendously helpful and I've, I've just got to know a little bit um it's um sinclair ferguson who you may have come across um i just think he's someone who both in person and his preaching just commends christ um in the gospel in a way that is j- just so helpful yeah i feel like i've learned a lot from him he's been pretty gracious to us he's, he's now back in scotland so he's been pretty kind to us down here in england um, spent <laughs> quite a few time with some of us us guys in the denomination trying to to refound presbyterianism in england and um yeah so recently he's been a, a huge influence um but number one is is my wife by uh, by miles Well, certainly tell her thank you for giving us the gift of an hour with you this morning. By the time this releases, God willing, the baby will be here safe and well. Uh, So we'll be thinking of you and praying for you guys in this transition and praying for you in your work in the UK. Um, You were telling me just a little bit about what it's like in you. I didn't mention this. I failed to mention this in the introduction, but you pastor a church there. So grateful for your work, brother, and uh, we'll be praying for you in the work that the Lord has set before you. Thank you so much just for the outpouring 
outpouring of your work in this book so that we can learn from you even at a distance and via the interwebs uh, and earbuds today. It's been a joy to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's lovely to meet you and, and good to spend time together. We hope that this conversation encourages you to treasure Christ all the more and to marvel at what he's done for us and what he continues to do. If you enjoyed listening, we hope that you'll hit subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes in our current series, Knowing and Loving God. If you want to access scripture references or other helps from this conversation with Jonti, you can find those over on our website at journeywomenpodcast.com. You can also find us on socials, hashing through the episodes throughout the week at Journey Women Podcast. And please, if you're loving Journey Women, take two seconds, text this episode to a friend, or leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Those reviews help get the podcast into the hands of other women who might find it helpful on their journeys to glorify God. This episode was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios. You can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. We are so grateful for them and for you. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. We can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week.